Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to talk about a man named Thomas Morris Chester. And he was the first African-American war correspondent working for a major daily newspaper. And that's pretty much how you will see him talked about in in most of the places where he is talked about. Yeah, if you ever are uh, looking him up online in a search, that's usually like the text that appears next to his next to the primary link or picture. Yeah, it's that's pretty much how he's discussed often. And he's not really a well-known figure in American history overall. Um, He covered the Civil War for the Pennsylvania Press. And in the course of his work, he saw the Union Army seize the Confederate capital of Richmond firsthand. But he had a lot of aspects to his life besides just this war correspondent work, um, which are pretty notable. He he played a role in pretty important parts of, of U.S. history before and after the war. So we're not going to talk just about his war correspondence work today. Uh, we're also going to talk about his long and kind of troubled relationship with the colonization movement from before the war. Uh, that movement encouraged freed slaves to emigrate to Africa. Uh, and we're also going to talk some about the years after the war when he moved to the Deep South to try to work for civil rights for African-Americans. So we'll start at the beginning uh, with his birth, which was on May 11th of 1834 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. His mother, Jane Marie, had escaped from slavery when she was 19, making her way from Baltimore, Maryland to York, Pennsylvania in 1825. His father, George, sold oysters, which we talked about oysters recently as well. Uh, and Thomas had 11 siblings, six of whom actually lived to adulthood. Apart from the oyster selling, they also ran a successful restaurant near the courthouse in Harrisburg. And they were abolitionists. So their restaurant became this hub for both general socializing in Harrisburg and for the abolition movement. So abolitionists would meet at the restaurant to plan and organize and to pick up a copy of The Liberator, which was William Lloyd Garrison's anti-slavery newspaper. And although there were many free African-Americans living in Harrisburg, their lives weren't particularly easy. Laws restricted basic civil rights uh, and racism was prevalent. Since Thomas's parents were running a successful business, they were living pretty comfortably as a family, especially compared to many other black Americans at the time. Uh, his parents really worked to make sure all of their children received an education. And this was not really something that everyone was able to afford or do. No, that's notable for sure. Yeah. So when Thomas was 16, he started attending the Allegheny Institute and Mission Church outside of Pittsburgh. And this was a co-educational school for African-Americans that was founded by abolitionist Charles Avery. It was reportedly also a stop on the Underground Railroad. He left the Institute two years later, in part because of the changing climate in Pennsylvania when it came to slavery. Pennsylvania had passed a gradual emancipation law in 1780. It was the first state to do this, actually. And the law did not actually free any slaves when it passed. Instead, it gradually freed the people born after that point who would have been slaves by having them be indentured servants until the age of 28. Yes, this was kind of a... It was a way to gradually free people, but it definitely did not confer immediate freedom on anyone. Like, no, probably most of the 
people living at the time it was passed would never really, it would be their it subsequent a, generation. It's very gradual. Yeah. If, if a person was born into slavery the day before the law went into effect, that person was born a slave. But a person who was born to slave parents the day after um, would instead be an indentured servant until they were 28 years old. This got revised a little bit uh, over the first few years after the, the law was passed so that that person would gradually become a free person rather than a slave. It was sort of meant to be a gradual way to give people their freedom without actually inconveniencing a lot of slaveholders. Yeah. There was a lot of progress in this time that was extremely slow and did not really seem like progress at all at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's when... Um you know, theory of government and politics is that gradual change is better than immediate change. And it's just a mindset that was at play there. Well, there was also a mindset of wanting to appease people. Yeah. And not stoke the fires of, of anger among people who's, uh, who were using slaves in their labor. Right. Which is, it kind of, those two things kind of play together. Right. No, you need to get used to the idea that you're not going to have this forever. I know, and to a modern <laughs> listener, that can just be so horrifying. <laughs> if there was any appeasing of people who owned slaves, but that's really something that was going on pretty extensively. By 1840, which is when Thomas was six, there were only 64 slaves in Pennsylvania, according to the census. So by the time the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, nearly all of the African Americans in Pennsylvania were free, although many of them were wor- working off this indenture that the uh, gradual emancipation law had put into place. In Harrisburg, in particular, most of the African-Americans living there even owned their own homes by this point. But because the Fugitive Slave Act required runaway slaves to be returned south to their owners and gave African-Americans virtually no rights to defend themselves if they were accused of being runaways... Many free people in the North, regardless of whether they had been slaves, were legitimately afraid that they would be, quote, returned south into slavery. And uh, as one can imagine, this made many consider leaving the country altogether. This desire to leave was compounded for many by the feeling that there was really no reason to fight to stay in a country where they would never have fair treatment. Slavery had been abolished in Canada, along with the rest of the British Empire, 17 years before. So many free African-Americans in Pennsylvania and elsewhere chose to flee to Canada to avoid the threat of being taken south. Others, including Thomas, chose to emigrate to Liberia. Um, as a side note, as I was researching this episode, I felt like everything about his life requires us to explain some context. So we've just explained the context of the Fugitive Slave Law. Uh, and why freed African-Americans were at this point fleeing to Canada. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about Liberia, which is the place where Thomas chose to live a lot of his adult life. Yes, and it, that is, again, a whole other place with a huge history. So. Yeah, we could do whole episodes <laughs> on the Fugitive Slave Law and a whole episode on Liberia and the colonization movement from the 19th century. Yeah, Uh So the brief version is the American Colonization Society founded the colony of Liberia in Western Africa in the early 1820s, meaning it to be a home for freed slaves. 
The movement viewed Liberia as a place set aside by God for them, and if Africans and Americans returned there, they could rid the continent of the slave trade, spread Christianity, and help improve Africa overall. Colonists began arriving there in 1822, and while they did manage to make it a republic in 1848, they met with extreme resistance from the native Africans already living there, and too few people migrated there for it to really thrive in the sense of its original intent. Thomas became Pennsylvania's most prominent and recognizable supporter of the colonization movement. He went to Liberia on the ship Banshee in April of 1853. And he went to the capital, Monrovia, and enrolled in Alexander High School. The curriculum, though, was basically a repeat of what he had already learned and studied at the Allegheny Institute. And this was really frustrating for him. He had wanted a life in Liberia that would be better than the opportunities that he'd had in America and not just a replay of what he had already done. Right. He had gone there because he really was hoping for a a better life and that it wasn't working out that he was getting the same opportunities. So in September of 1854... 18 months after he got to Liberia, he went back to the United States to attend Thetford Academy in Vermont. Uh, His tuition was paid for by the New York colonizationists, with his parents contributing what they could afford. And the idea was that he would further his education and then go back to Liberia. The colonization movement was really eager for him to return, since it would be kind of damaging to the cause, or at least damaging to people's perceptions of what they were trying to do, for such a prominent advocate to have gone to Liberia and then turned around and come back home again. So he was definitely on the radar of the people who were organizing and leading this movement. And and they were willing to pay for his education so that he could return. Yes, that he could go back to Liberia and... And do more work. Uh, he wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't afford it. And the colonization movement was anxious for him to return to Liberia, as we were just speaking of. So they were not willing to pay his way through law school. So in May of 1855, he offered his services as a teacher, and he was granted free passage back to Liberia in steerage if he taught the settlers on board during and after the journey. He didn't really like the idea of traveling steerage and thought that based on his prominence and his work that he should be able to get an actual cabin. So he tried to negotiate for terms that would let him buy a cabin uh, on his own. And that was going to require some money. What he really wanted to do was to found and lead a school. And eventually he was able to make a case that the executive committee of the ACS, the American Colonization Society that we referred to earlier, they agreed to this plan. So he boarded the Mary Caroline Stevens for Liberia in November of 1855. Unfortunately, uh, this plan was not an overwhelming success, however. In addition to paying him a lower salary than it had earmarked, the ACS didn't set aside funds or have plans for building a new school. So Thomas's classroom was in a hallway in a place called the Receptacle, which was sort of an acclimation center for new colonists. He also wound up in the middle of a power struggle, both within the colony and between the colony and the ACS back in the States. He was constantly at odds with the leadership there, which led to a whole lot of gossip and accusations of wrongdoing and mismanagement on all sides. And at this point, there's not a lot to go on about who was actually right. We have a whole lot of documentation of what everyone said, but not a whole lot of documentation of what actually happened. But eventually, Thomas resigned and went back to America again. Racking up the frequent 
travel miles. That This is one of the things I, I understand why a lot of biographical information seems reluctant to talk about this period in his life. Uh, because, number one, the colonization movement was pretty contentious in the world at that point. There were a lot of people who didn't agree mm-hmm. with the movement. And then, obviously, there were also some some internal conflicts going on within the movement. Um, so I think a lot of people, they, they don't want to sort of tarnish anyone's opinion of either the movement or of him or anything like this. But having to go back and forth across the ocean so many times at this point in history, I think makes it uh, pretty big to omit that whole part. Yeah, that's that's a lot of time to spend going back and forth. And a lot of effort. I mean, it was not an easy sea voyage. No, it's not like booking a flight. No. You kind of have to prepare for a long time and prepare to be not in delightful circumstances the whole time. And upon his return, he was actually viewed with suspicion by the rest of the movement. He actually became enough of a pariah that it's somewhat surprising that he and the ACS didn't just part ways. Instead, he tried to stay under the radar and not get embroiled in the infighting or politics that were going on within the movement. He also started working to support individual people and small groups who wanted to emigrate. And eventually, he started to put together another plan to return to Liberia himself, this time to start a newspaper. The capital of Liberia, which was called Monrovia, didn't have a newspaper at the time, and people generally thought it really needed one. At this point, though, both the American and Pennsylvania Societies for Colonization were reluctant to deal with Thomas after his previous trip. And eventually he made a successful case, uh, and he was once again bound for Liberia in exchange for $60 of his own money and an annual subscription for 25 copies of the newspaper to his benefactors. He was also to teach at the Brewster Receptacle for a few months so that he could earn enough money to actually launch the newspaper when he got there. So his way was paid, but he was going to have to earn his own money to launch the newspaper. Which he did, Uh, although by that point, Liberia's original paper, the Liberian Herald, had been resurrected. So there wasn't that gap that he had counted on. Uh, The Herald was a government supported paper and Thomas's was independent. And it quickly came under fire for publishing things that were critical of the government. Thomas didn't agree with the positions of Stephen A. Benson, who was the Liberian president. After the Star published an anonymous letter that was critical of the government, the Herald fired back with accusations of sexual impropriety between Thomas and another teacher. This led to both the Board of Trustees investigating the teacher and a grand jury investigation into the Brewster receptacle. In the aftermath of all of this, both Thomas and the other teacher resigned and left Liberia. Uh, as with problems during his previous trip to Liberia, it's unclear at this point exactly who did what. Uh, his accusers often fell back on how Thomas was tall, muscular, extremely attractive, and had a reputation for having a way with the ladies. So they kind of circumstantially judged him based, yeah. based on his just appeal as a human being. Those either, you know, played a role in what people perceived he was doing or, or maybe played a role in his actual behavior. It's unclear at this point. Back in the United States, he spent several months promoting colonization on behalf of the Pennsylvania Society. And in September of 1860, he went back to Liberia again. The star had stopped publishing after he left and he wanted to get it going again. He really wanted people who didn't agree with the Liberian government to have a voice in the newspaper. He was hoping to use the newspaper's influence to sway the course 
of upcoming elections. But when Benson, who he previously said did, he did not agree with, was reelected, he once again decided to return to the states. This, I feel like, I, I sort of want to characterize him as just a, a strong idealist who was really committed to his own beliefs and not willing to play politics to compromise them in any way. So he wound up butting heads with a lot of people. Yeah. In the whole context of this movement. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I'm glad you said that because it is easy to start, you know, with these repeats of I went and tried it and I got mad and I came home that you want to be careful not to characterize him as just kind of a foot stompy, like angry. Uh, fine, I'm leaving, you know, right. Uh, that there are ideals behind this behavior. It's yeah. not just that it didn't go his way. So he was out of there. Yeah, there were strong ideals behind the whole movement. And how it was going to be better for freed slaves to move to Africa than to stay in America. Uh, And he really felt like sometimes when he got there, it was not actually better. And he was not willing to back down on that idea. He was like, no, seriously, this needs to be better if we are moving to Africa. Yeah. Um, And he just, he really raised a lot of ire from people. But back in the U.S. in 1861, Thomas kept speaking on behalf of the colonization movement. So even though he was frustrated with how it was going, he was still, you know, promoting it in some ways. But there was heavy resistance at that point to the idea of colonization. A lot of people who wanted to emigrate were choosing to go to other places, including Haiti. But many felt like America was their home. And even though they weren't treated as full citizens there, it was the option that they were most interested in. The prevailing desire of most African-Americans to stay in the United States got stronger and stronger as the government started to actually encourage colonization. In 1862, for example, following the District of Columbia Emancipation Act, Congress earmarked $100,000 to fund the immigration of freed slaves. Lincoln and others in the government had supported immigration plans as well, which led to really vocal protests. There are a lot of reasons why people were reluctant to leave the United States and to move somewhere else, most often Africa. But a lot of it boiled down to people thinking, okay, why should we give up our home and property just to appease a bunch of racists? Which I think is a valid question. (laughs) Um, There's also a really great long read at the root uh, about why people chose to stay. A lot of that is focused on why uh, why freed slaves chose to stay in the South. Mm -hmm. But it's still relevant. Uh, A lot of the issues that it brings up as reasons for people to stay applied to anyone who was staying at a place where they were facing just serious discrimination and unfairness at all turns. Yeah. And these why why don't you go away somewhere else? You'll be happier there. I'm sure of it. I know there was a there was a lot of question about what what will we do once slaves are freed? Yeah. And a, a lot of people in the government proposing as an actual solution in quotation marks, well, we could just send them back to Africa. Yeah. I don't recall learning a ton about that. No, uh, <laughs> in, my, in my school about uh, it was more. And then we freed slaves and everything was great. Yeah. Wait, no, that's not true at all. It's a heavy simplification that is not accurate. Uh, throughout all this, Thomas had been thinking about returning to Liberia again. But after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, it became clear that there wasn't going to be a mass immigration. And so Thomas decided not to go. 
he started working on a way to get to Britain to continue his education. But in the meantime, he turned his attention to the Civil War. Following a call for black soldiers to fight for the Union, he became a recruiter. And he recruited African-American soldiers into the 54th and 55th Massachusetts regiments. And he didn't stay entirely on the sidelines. When Harrisburg was threatened with Confederate attack, he actually briefly became a captain in the Pennsylvania State Militia. So what Thomas is most known for is his war correspondence. And we have finally gotten to the Civil War. In August 1864, an editor named John Russell Young, who had himself been a war correspondent, offered Thomas a job at the Philadelphia Press to report from the front lines and focus on the work of black troops. And the job of a reporter was not entirely respected in America before the war. Often, reporters were viewed as nosy people airing other people's business. But that changed when they became the primary way for news from the front to reach the rest of the people. Hiring Thomas and giving him such an assignment was really a huge risk on the part of the paper, both politically and financially. There was, you know, there was a risk of everything from people attacking the offices of the paper to just not buying the paper anymore. Uh, but white papers weren't really reporting on the African-American soldiers. And at the time, there were only two black weeklies covering things from a black perspective. And at this point, the Union Army was only about a month into a congressional effort under Lincoln's direction to try to work out massive inequalities between black and white soldiers. Black soldiers were unfortunately basically cannon fodder, given inferior everything, and were sometimes beaten and abused by their white commanding officers. Thomas was, uh, in part, working to draw attention to these issues. Right. Even if a unit, if a fighting unit, was entirely made up of African-American enlisted men, almost always the commanding officers were white. And that led to all kinds of issues uh, within the Union Army in in terms of fairness and how people were treated and and all of that sort of stuff. Um, In taking this job, as we alluded to earlier, Thomas became the first African-American to be a war correspondent for a major daily newspaper. In addition to the risk of being hurt or killed in the front, he also really was at genuine risk for being sold into slavery if he were captured by the Confederates. He wrote often with empathy and sometimes even with humor. His very first dispatch was about an explosion at the headquarters outside Petersburg. Here's what he wrote about it. For several hundred yards, the ground was thickly strewn with debris. The million of property destroyed was but little thought of in the midst of the immense loss of life. Fragments of humanity were scattered around in the immediate vicinity of the tragedy in frightful profusion. Sorrow was depicted in every countenance that gazed on the ruins, but those loudest in their grief were the contrabands who mourned their relatives and comrades. Being employed in great numbers where the accident occurred, more of them were killed and wounded than any other class of individuals. And not much later, he wrote this passage. This is one of the funny ones. Yeah. Yay. The enterprising managers of the firm of Grant and Lee take pleasure in announcing to the public in and around Petersburg that they are now prepared and will continue until further notice to give every evening a grand exhibition of fireworks for the benefit of their respective employees. The past experience of the firm has enabled it to acquire a success in this direction, which it feels satisfied a liberal-minded public will concede. The managers will not in any case hold themselves responsible for any accidents which may occur to those who may be attracted, from curiosity or otherwise, to witness their exhibition. 
That makes me chuckle. It does. It's really charming. Most of the action he witnessed was near Petersburg and Richmond. He spent almost all of his time reporting from Virginia, although he did accompany the Union Army to Fort Fisher, North Carolina, in December of 1864. The Union had planned to take out the fort at the mouth of the Cape Beer River using a barge of explosives, which was going to cut off the South's supply route. But the plan failed because the walls of the fort were too strong for this barge of explosives to blow up. Uh, They had to call off the attack. Like other Union writers, part of Thomas's job was to make it seem as though the war was going well, so he could not, you know, feed into the perception that this was a horrible, catastrophic error on the part of any particular person. This is what he had to say. There will probably be much speculation in reference to the failure of this expedition, attributing it to the want of military foresight on the part of General General Weitzel and not providing the expedition with the necessary implements for a siege. Two other causes are, however, responsible for the result. The first being the publicity which naval officers in Norfolk, previous to sailing, gave their impressions as to the destination of the fleet. And secondly, the delay caused after the arrival of the fleet off Masonboro Inlet. We experienced, previous to the storm, four days of splendid weather. There could not have been better weather for the attack. So he was trying to diffuse the blame and not make it seem as though any particular person should take the fall for this unsuccessful attempt. Multiple factors at play here, people, is kind of his approach. On April 3rd of 1865, he saw the fall of Richmond. The first troops to enter the city were the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry and the 25th Army Corps, both of which were black units. Blacks within the city welcomed them as heroes. And he wrote, On Sunday evening, strange to say, the jails in this place were thrown open, and all runaway Negroes, those for sale and those for safekeeping, were told to hop out and enjoy their freedom. You may rely upon it that they did not need a second invitation. Many of these persons will have no difficulty in convincing themselves that they were always on the side of the Union and the freedom of the slave. Great events have a wonderful influence on the minds of guilty, trembling wretches. So upon entering Richmond, he went to the Virginia State House, which had been home to the Confederate Congress, and wrote his first dispatch after the fall of the city while sitting at the desk belonging to the Speaker of the Confederate House. A Boston correspondent named Charles Carrollton Coffin wrote this tale about the event, which is just ranking up there with uh, the recent story we told about Hypatia deterring a suitor Mm. with favorite historical anecdotes. And so here is what Charles Carrollton Coffin said. Visiting the Capitol, he entered the Senate chamber and sat down at the speaker's chair to write a letter. A paroled rebel officer entered the room. Come out of there, you black cuss, shouted the officer, clenching his fist. Mr. Chester raised his eyes, calmly surveyed the intruder, and went on with his writing. Get out of here or I'll knock your brains out, the officer bellowed, pouring out a torrent of oaths and rushing up the steps to execute his threat. Found himself tumbling over the chairs and benches, knocked down by one well-planted blow between the eyes. Mr. Chester sat down as if nothing had happened. The rebel sprang to his feet and called upon Captain Hutchins of General Devons's staff for a sword. I'll cut that fellow's heart out, said he. Oh, I guess not, 
I can't let you have my sword for any such purpose. If you want to fight, I will clear a space there and see that you have fair play. But let me tell you that you will get a tremendous thrashing, said Captain Hutchins. The officer left the hall in disgust. Once again, there are so many levels of things that I love about the story. (laughs) Starting with him writing a dispatch (laughs) in the speaker's chair and including punching a guy between the eyes. Calmly. Calmly. (laughs) And then getting back to his work. After the fall of Richmond, Thomas stayed in the city to report on rebuilding efforts. The city was war-torn, it was partly destroyed, and it was full of impoverished, displaced people after the war. He also traveled to Washington to advocate for civil rights before Andrew Johnson. From there, he returned to his hometown of Harrisburg. And until he left for England to study law that fall, he worked as an advocate for equal rights and joined the Pennsylvania State Equal Rights League. He actually became its solicitor and literary critic and its corresponding secretary. He earned his law degree in England at the age of 36. While he was overseas, he also toured Europe and Russia on behalf of the League. He was invited to meet and have a meal with the Tsar as well. Then he spent two years in Europe serving as a diplomatic representative of Liberia, having been appointed as an aide-de-camp of James Spriggs Payne, who was president of Liberia sometime in 1868. He left that post after an election, again brought brought an administration into power, which he didn't entirely support. And while he continued to think about returning to Liberia, and he actually referred to Liberia as home for most of his adult life, he was reluctant to do so based on all of his experiences there before. He came to the United States again, where he moved to the Deep South, becoming the first African-American to practice law in the state of Louisiana, uh, with his goal really working on the Reconstruction effort. And this was obviously not a welcoming situation. Racism and violence against African-Americans were rampant, and the local political environment was full of corruption. At one point, he was actually shot in the head during an altercation related to a possibly fraudulent election. He survived uh, and went on to work for equal rights and an end to racism and segregation for the rest of his career. He also became a brigadier general in the Louisiana State Militia in the aftermath of a different election, that of William Pitt Kellogg to the office of governor, which was disputed by the Democrats and led to a violent rebellion. As if he had not had enough careers at this point, he became a politician and he served in a number of offices, including the superintendent of public education in more than one Louisiana division. He continued to be active in the Republican government until 1877 when the Democrats took control. From there, he became U.S. Commissioner for New Orleans, which was a federal appointment, and he held that post until 1883. The Republican government had been much more supportive of African Americans than the Democrats were at the time. So the change in leadership left Thomas feeling pretty frustrated and disillusioned. Uh, Like we said before, he was really an idealist, and he did not want to back down on anything. But he started to spend more time in Harrisburg. He eventually married a teacher named Florence Johnson. And the couple split their time between Pennsylvania and Louisiana. Uh, And she was teaching during this time and he was practicing law. In another turn, late in his life, he became president of the Wilmington, Wrightsville and Onslow Railroad, an African-American owned company in North Carolina in 1884. This might have been a financial move since his law clients were often extremely poor, which made it hard for him to make an actual living from his law work. Unfortunately, though, the railroad company eventually failed. 
And finally, on September 30th of 1892, Thomas died uh, at the age of 58. His name is really not very well known in most of the United States, but he became really prominently known in his hometown of Harrisburg, where a school was named after him in 2004. And the book Thomas Morris Chester, Black Civil War Correspondent, which was edited by R.J.M. Blackett, includes quite a lengthy biography on him. And it also includes all of his dispatches as a correspondent. I ordered a copy of that book yeah, uh, before before doing research on this podcast. And I did not comprehend how cool what was going to be arriving in the in the mail was like I knew it was his dispatches from the front. I didn't quite realize that it was a very detailed biography of his whole life, followed by every dispatch that he wrote. So if you are interested in this at all, this is a, a highly worthwhile. Yeah, uh, it's much more it's much more comprehensive than you might think. It gets into a lot of detail about uh, all the various like he said, he said, she said going on <laughs> while he was working uh, in Liberia, it gets a, a lot into a lot more detail about that particular movement. Um, as we said, there are many, many things in this episode that could have been episodes on their own. We keep finding um, that. Yeah, this I, I feel like this had more of that than in any episode that I've researched in a while. I felt like every time I turned a page, there was something else that was going to need context explained because it has not maybe been talked about very much in your typical schoolroom. Well, and in the United States, he was busy. He was busy. He did a lot of very different, uh, interesting things. He broke a lot of ground in terms of color barriers. Mm-hmm. He just, just, I see where eight podcasts could come off of this one. Yeah. Well, and it makes me really sad that he, he I think that the general perception is that by the time he died, he was very frustrated with the state of race relations in, in America. He was not very optimistic that things were going to get better. And that is very sad. Yeah. Uh, I, it makes me very sad that having accomplished so much, that seems to have been his state of mind at the end of his life. Yeah. I empathize with it. I cannot say I identify with it because I am not an African-American person, and that would be a just terribly yeah. pretentious thing to say. But yeah, uh, it does make me sad that, that I think of course. at the end of his life, he was in a, a place of frustration. Yeah, I mean, you don't want anybody to feel that way at the end of their lives, but particularly with as much as he had gone through and as much work and effort as he had put into the race relations movement, uh, you hate to think that he felt like it was for naught. Right. And so much of his writing and his actions make it clear that that his motivation always was a sense of wanting things to be better for people. And that is uh, another reason why it was so deeply frustrating so often, because things were not getting better very quickly at all. I think I also have some Lister mail. Fantastic. This is actually two pieces of mail about the same thing from our Facebook, uh, from people who have raised very interesting questions about our Flannan Isle Lighthouse disappearance episode. The first is from Ashley, and she says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I listened to your podcast while I'm working, so I may have missed some information in your most recent podcast concerning the mystery surrounding the Flannan Isle Lighthouse. At any rate, I am curious to know why thieves, bandits, and or pirates were not considered as possible culprits in the disappearance of three men. There may not have been anything of worth in the lighthouse, but seems to me a more likely option than some of the other suggestions. Thanks for the research. Keep it up. 
I would say definitely uh, piracy is more likely than aliens. Yeah, and it it has been theorized by various historians that yeah. that was that could have been the cause, right? But it was such a remote location. Like, the, the island itself was uninhabited by anyone else. Like, there was no other human presence on the island besides the lighthouse. Yeah. Um, it would have required some serious work for thieves or bandits to make their way out there. Yeah, and to make their way... Uh, we talked a little bit about how it was it was difficult to um, dock at yeah. the, the landing stage there. They had to have assistance that yeah. was there. Yeah. Uh, and how that one man had had to jump from his boat. He had had to back in the small boat into the, the slip and jump and how it was a little bit dangerous. So that could have potentially been a deterrent as well. Right. Uh, we also got a note on Facebook from Jim. And Jim said, did you consider that the source of a rogue wave that might have killed the three lighthouse keepers might have been an undersea earthquake? After all, Iceland and the Mid-Atlantic Ridge aren't that far away. However, a large tsunami probably would have been reported by others along the west coast of Scotland if one happened. Um, this had a very similar answer Yeah, uh, of basically what Jim said, which is that um, where the Flannan Isles are located between uh, Iceland and bigger, more inhabited islands, mm-hmm. if there had been something as large as a tsunami, that almost certainly would have been reported by other people. And that would have led the uh, the investigation to be like, they must have been wiped out by the tsunami and not, I wonder what happened. Yeah, and I think we might have referenced it briefly in the episode, but I know there is at least one author that has written a book that he thinks it was potentially a sea quake. Yeah. Um, but he, there wasn't enough supporting evidence for me to include that one in the, the list. Just, you know, eventually you have to edit out some things for time. Right. Uh, I think uh, like a freak rogue wave situation. Uh, is probably a little more likely than Seaquake because that would have made a much larger wave, probably. Yeah, it's, um, you know, such an isolated incident. And even though these are kind of out on their own, they're not the only thing there. We know there were uh, people nearby, for example, the gamekeeper that was mm-hmm. um, keeping an eye on things. Uh, he surely would have seen if there had been a, a tsunami. A huge tsunami, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Those are the answers to those questions. They're not about really. The they're not really answers, other than you know, some people think that might be the thing, right? So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can at historypodcast@discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com/historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest too, where we have pinned a whole bunch of pictures of that lighthouse. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our website and put the word newspapers in the search bar. You will find how newspapers work, which is freshly updated for this century. Yeah. Yeah. Lots you can, of changes in that industry. So many. You can learn about all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. 
Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.